Welcome to TG2Cast. I'm Arthur Caravelli, co-founder of Teachers Going Gradeless. In this episode, I interview Jesse Stommel. Jesse is the executive director of the Division of Teaching and Learning Technologies at University of Mary Washington. He is co-founder of Digital Pedagogy Lab and Hybrid Pedagogy, a digital journal of learning, teaching, and technology. He's also a documentary filmmaker and teaches courses about digital pedagogy, film, and new media. Welcome, Jesse. It's great to talk to you today. Thank you. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you. Yeah, and I, I've also noticed that you've spent a fair amount of time teaching Shakespeare. Is that correct? I have taught Shakespeare. Um, interestingly, I... Um, my primary area of study and my area of teaching has been in media studies and literature. Um, and uh, the uh, at the same time, my closest mentor is a Shakespeare teacher. So I started teaching. I started co-teaching with her about sixteen years ago, and so I've been mm-hmm. I've been kind of continu- continuing to teach Shakespeare all along. Okay, I'm going to have to ask you about that a little bit later on. I think, uh, but anyways. Um, I wanted to just start out by asking you to maybe supplement some of what I mentioned up in your bio there. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work, your focus, your approach, what you're working on, what you're interested in? Sure, happy to. Um, I've been teaching for 17 years. Um, I've been teaching at all, at all levels of higher education, community colleges, research institutions, liberal arts colleges, non-traditional adult students. Um, and, uh, my own research has always, my primary research area has always been critical pedagogy. And in some ways, I think that the technology bit comes from, I've always been a dabbler and interested and curious and, and a critical thinker about technology. My uh, dad actually had me doing some statistical analysis and designing websites for him as a side job. I think when I told him that I was going to be an English and film major, he uh, thought, oh, I better get help my son get some practical skills. <laughs> <laughs> so he had me doing all these side jobs with technology. And so interestingly, I just continued to sort work on the side throughout uh, undergraduate and graduate school, um, being a web designer and a film editor. And, um, and yeah, so that's how I ended up thinking about the intersections between critical and digital pedagogies. And specifically, the journal that I have, uh, that I co-founded in 2011, Hybrid Pedagogy, that's its focus, is critical digital pedagogy, thinking about how critical pedagogies and student agency and, you know, teacher agency, how those sit alongside a lot of the rapid changes that we're seeing in how we approach education or how educational institutions approach ed- education. And then the other project that I've worked on most recently is Digital Pedagogy Lab, which is a institute, a five-day institute in Fredericksburg, Virginia at University of Mary Washington um, that happens each summer. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I re- so appreciate uh, some of the work that you and and it seems some of your colleagues are doing, just the rapid changes that you mentioned and, and helping us to understand those, to wrap our minds around those, humanize those, maybe even protect us from those to a certain extent. Um, but I'd like you to walk us through a little bit because we are a gradeless group and that's kind of our focus. That's what we have in common. A little bit about how you arrived at your ideas around grades and where did that start for you? So my first experience with uh, a gradeless classroom was one of my uh, college professors and mentors, Martin Bickman. 
Um, and he, I took, I think three classes with him as an undergrad. And then I took a couple classes with him as a graduate student as well. And he, his classes were gradeless. Um, and instantly it made sense to me and it, it, um, and so when I went to teach, it, it sort of was an obvious choice for myself. And I'm not necessarily sure if I would have found the choice on my own, but I think I would have because when I entered a gradeless classroom, I felt, in some ways, I felt for the first time in my education like something just made sense. I wasn't, I wasn't swimming against the tide, um, which is how I how I feel in a lot of our educational experiences. <laughs> That's what we're doing. Human beings are, you know, complex, subjective, interesting, emotional, curious creatures. And we build these institutional structures for education that are run exactly counter to what I see as a lot of the sort of our basic instinct when it comes to how we learn and how we interact with the world. And so I, I, I think I likely would have done it anyway, but I would have, I probably would have floundered a little bit more with some of the methods and sort of knowing where to even begin to teach grade list because, you know, most of us have experienced a graded classroom for the majority of our educations, unless we went to one of the great institutions that have um, eliminated grades. Um, the, the other big influence for me is just before I started teaching um, my first course as an instructor of record, it was a, a freshman writing course. And I remember just sort of searching everywhere for stuff to read about teaching and learning. And the book that I landed upon was the book, How Children Fail by John Holt. Uh, and yes. so I ended up furiously reading this book into the wee <laughs> hours of the night. And he doesn't, in that book, it's, you know, that book isn't really about a gradeless classroom. It is about a whole myriad of things, but like the, the pedagogies that underlie everything John Holt talks about is sort of founded in the idea of bringing out students' intrinsic motivations um, and creating a place, uh, creating a learning place that uh, emphasizes discovery as opposed to dictating learning to students. So mm. that book had a huge influence on me as well. I experienced actually. I did experience a gradeless environment at the at the University of Michigan. I I really enjoyed that. I think that was my first experience with it as well. And it and it felt right. I like how you said that that it was not like new or radical, um, but really felt natural. Yeah. And that I just had a sense that that's the way it should be done. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it's fascinating that that pe when I talk to people over many many years there is this sort of notion that what I'm doing is extremely radical. And yet, I mean, I think more radical or more sort of bizarre, let's use the word <laughs> bizarre, is to layer all of these strange object, you know, these strange supposedly objective um, systems on top of something as simple as learning. Like, learning is gradeless. I mean, it, at its, right. you know, its nature is to be gradeless. So grades are actually something that we put on top of learning. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, as my 11-month-year-old, mm -hmm. as she's learning to walk, as she's learning to speak, I'm not grading her utterances. I'm not grading the number of steps that she takes and how good those steps are. You know, she's, right. she's, learning, um, sh she's learning just fine on her own.
moving on, I, I think in your blog post and, and the one that I think we, we, we happened upon and we actually in our community really blew up. And, and I think a lot of us, um, have a crush on you for this uh, article. Why I don't, why I don't grade. Plus your your beard, by the way, is, is awesome. I was just not yeah. see that. But anyways, um, you know this this article. You we we just enjoyed so much because I think so many so many of us are trying to connect those dots. Uh, you make a rather shocking bold statement. I'm just going to quote this here. Grades are the biggest and most insidious obstacle to education. And before I let you respond to that, I just want, I think it's interesting that you as a teacher have been interested in some other rather big and insidious obstacles, uh, systematic oppression, inequities in learning interfaces. So you're interested in a lot of those obstacles. And I just wonder what makes you key in on grades as opposed to other sources of inequity and oppression? Yeah, I think, I think that the, the main reason that I would say that is because I, I have... Uh, run workshops on critical pedagogy. I have given keynotes on critical pedagogy, you know, in various different states to various different kinds of audiences. I've run hashtag chats. I've written articles. And it feels like almost every time that I talk about student agency and I talk about, um, you know, and even so I've even done some writing and some presenting on, uh, uh, about the adjunct crisis in higher ed. So even thinking about um, agency of instructors, every time I talk about these things, I feel like in every discussion, at some point in the discussion, it circles back around to grades. It's sort of like the elephant in the room. Like anytime you're talking about anything having to do with critical pedagogy, student agency, um, intrinsic motivation, it circles back around to, but what do I do at the end of the term when I have to give my students a grade? Or when you're talking about having your students do particular kinds of work, people say, but how will I grade that? Uh, and when you're talking about uh, student agency and giving students um, authentic kinds of assignments, you get questions like, but I have 300 students. How will I assess mm. that? Um, mm-hmm. If you let students do anything, but I don't have time to, to, to engage with any random set of things. And so it feels like, it feels like so many discussions I've had and I'm always waiting for that moment. When is grades going to come up? And it almost Mm. always does. And so to me, it feels like that that's why I say they're the thorn in the side. I mean, they're the thorn in the side of these discussions because they're constantly kind of nagging at every, at every kind of attempt that we make to liberate our classrooms, to, um, to create spaces of social justice, to create spaces that emphasize authentic, um, authentic assessment and, uh, intrinsic motivation. It feels like there's kind of like this poke, this poke on that discussion. Mm -hmm. It keeps us from going quite as far as we otherwise would. You know, I, I find the same thing. I think that a lot of us come at this through, um, you know, the curriculum of, of having one that desires to create those more liberatory spaces and, and that grades kind of work against that. So that definitely confirms my experience. Um, as I read your articles and as I watched some videos that you made with your colleague, uh, Sean Michael Morris, 
Uh, I happened upon your piece if bell hooks made an LMS. Grades, Radical Openness, and the Domain of One's Own. Awesome title, by the way. I appreciate the uh, Virginia Woolf reference. Uh, I see a common thread about platforms, and that platforms are not neutral. wonder if you can make that connection even more explicit between your work with what you call a domain of one's own and what that is, and learning management systems, machine grading, automated agents, and the like. And how does, how does that get in the way of your aims as an educator? Great. Um, yeah, lots there. Uh, domain of one's own. So domain of one's own is a project um, started at University of Mary Washington that gives students a domain name and then hosting space and essentially allows them to craft on the web their own environment for learning. Uh, a space that they can uh, that they can take ownership of, and a space that they can inhabit, um, very different than the space of a learning management system. Or, uh, and one of the things that I've spent a lot of time critiquing is the grade book inside the learning management system. Right. Because I think too often the the, whole, the entirety of the learning management system is built around the grade book. The grade book is the thing that restricts or limits all the other features. So it's another good example of a tool that if you just removed the grade book from it, the tool would be able to be something completely different than what it currently is. But as it, as it stands, I sort of feel like the entire tool is built in order to feed the grade book. Like the grade book is this sort of, is this creature that hides in the belly of the learning management <laughs> system. And then the learning management system has to find food for it in order yeah. to feed it. Um, and I think that what happens when we use these kinds of tools is that even if we're progressive educators, even if we're critical pedagogues, the tool, we can't help but be influenced by the interface. You walk into a room, and if all the chairs are pointed into in a particular direction, you're likely to sit in one of those chairs and face that direction. You're very unlikely to walk into that room and take one of those chairs, even if they're movable. Uh, and so it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be really, um, fixed in its, in the pedagogies that are baked in can just influence you slightly by, you know, even if the chairs are movable, you walk into that room, you're very unlikely to take the chair and turn it and point the opposite direction and sit in it. Um, and so the ways in which all of these platforms that we build for learning have pedagogies baked into them and that even progressive educators go into them and are, their teaching is influenced in a particular way. And then you imagine new educators, educators like that person that I was before I picked up that John Holt book, you know, and I walk into the space of a classroom or walk into the space of a learning management system. And not only do I not realize that the learning management system has a pedagogy baked into it, but I also wouldn't necessarily have the tools, the intellectual tools, the physical tools, the technical tools in order to turn that chair around and face it the other direction. So I, right. I think that new teachers are being thrown into a learning management system and it is kind of dictating to them what they might do with it. I also remember the first time, the first tool I got for teaching was when I first started teaching that freshman composition seminar, um, there was a grade book, an old school grade, grade book put into my mail book, bat, book box at the university. And even mm -hmm. just that old school grade book, you know, it, it had columns and rows. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't think, 
oh, it shouldn't have columns and rows. But if I, if I think about like, what is the philosophy that's baked into columns and rows, it's that students are rows. Um, they're all lined up. They're stacked in comparison to one another. So it essentially flattens their difference. And then right. the work they do is a series of columns, which if work if the, if the sort of labor of learning is broken into columns, you have to be able to parse it out into these discrete units um, as though your learning is just a series of activities that you do and a very limited and discrete series of activities. So we think about just the metaphor of just the grade book and yes. how it stacks people, um, compares them to one another, and then reduces learning to a series of rote behaviors or activities. Um, how much that influences just the way we think about how learning happens. Right. Right. I, I love looking at that as a metaphor, as a visual metaphor for what we're saying about teaching there. Um, I've, I've written about kind of considering those to be cells. I mean, we talk about a, any grid as, as being cells. Mm -hmm. And, and when you get into that almost prison like metaphor, you know, I, I want to push a little bit even further with this. So, I, you know, one of the things that I've dealt with, I think, in my career, and, and you probably have some sense of this as an English teacher, is is that um, what are those things that are enshrined in in the pedagogies and and the tools and and um, you know the resources that are available to us? Could you go as far to say that there are certain values like that? I mean, even up to and including possibly racist or white supremacist values that are enshrined in these um, tools, which are seemingly neutral. That's a question that I've just wondered about is, can we ma even make that connection? Well, I think, I think the connection fits with what I, with the metaphor that I just um, was talking about with the grade book, just the fact that they're all neatly stacked on top of one, on one another suggests that their context is all the same. That all of it sort of flattens all when I what I mean when I say it flattens all of their difference is it it turns every student into just a name, no background, no identity, none of the complexity that influences what we can and cannot be in the world. Like none of the privilege that certain students have over others is represented when we just put students into a neat and tidy stack. And I think so many of the things that we do in our teaching, so many of the structures put students into that, that neat and tidy stack. For example, like the role sheet that we get, the role sheet that privileges people who are using their given name as opposed to, for example, a trans student who has changed their name or, um, and, and the kind of uh, the, the impact that that has on the student when the student does anything that tries to break from the, the mold they've been cast in even before they've arrived at the class. Um, and I think that our technical tools in some ways make it even harder to get outside of those boxes. For example, the answer from some institutions for why a student's name shows up in the role sheet or shows up on their student ID or shows up in the learning management system as something other than their preferred name. Uh, the, the answer that, that I've heard people give before is, well, our system doesn't allow anything else. And I just think that's, that's absurd. That's, that's not a reason to lose touch with a person's basic humanity. Um, right. and so it, I, I guess that's a bit of an answer. Uh, other thoughts? Right. Do you have other thoughts? 
Well, I, I think one of the things that you said in there that I thought was kind of interesting was, um, you know, by flattening this, maybe rendering some of it invisible, um, that there are differences and that, um, uh, you know, maybe a more privileged individual will be able to kind of march across the, the plane of the grade book um, with a lot more ease than someone who maybe doesn't fit into that series of activities or whatever it is that the teacher has lined up for them, but we're not going to really pay attention to that. There's no accounting for that mm-hmm. in, in the visual image of that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it really is one of the areas that I'm, I'm struggling with. Uh, actually, it may lead kind of into a, a follow-up question here of a critique that I sometimes hear is this question of equity. Um, in eliminating grades, in, in getting rid of those demotivating, degrading, depersonalized fixtures of education, getting rid of the grade book. And, and so that's kind of what we've been advocating for. You run the risk of making that gauntlet, you know, that series of cells, you know, at least it's, it's, it's visible. You run the risk of turning that and making that invisible and unnavigable. And particularly to the most marginalized students. So I've heard this and I've gotten pushback on this so that the privileged students, due to their cultural currency or even actual currency, will be able to navigate and benefit from whatever system or lack of system you throw at them. They will flourish. They will flourish in those spaces and maybe even um, when you take away some of those cells, they'll flourish even more. Um, so, and, and even if we are able to create or carve out a more equitable space in our classroom and even in our school. There is this larger society that we need to help students navigate, that we need to render visible, and that world involves grades, and that world involves tests, and that world involves data. And and so one of the pushback that I get is, is this rhetoric of disruption, of ditching, of hacking, of throwing out could potentially end up privileging the privileges uh, privileged. And I'm just wondering if, have you heard that critique? Well, I mean, I think that the one thing that is, is really important, and I talked about it in my blog post, is that you can't take grades off the table and imagine that somehow you've removed all of the things that are feeding into the system that produced grades in the first place. You also can't take grades off the table in one classroom or even in one institution and imagine somehow that students will be free of grades. Because the thing mm-hmm. is that students have been being graded since, um, since incredibly early. In fact, you know, I talked about my 11-month-old, and I talked about how I'm not grading her walking or I'm not grading her, her speech acts. But that's actually not true. Her, when she goes to the, the doctor, she is being graded and compared to other babies her size. Mm-hmm. She is. There is a sense in which her development is being watched carefully to make sure she meets particular milestones at particular points. And so the thing is, like, where does that come from? I don't think inherently we do that because it's good, or inherently we do that because it's like it's in our nature to grade. Mm-hmm. Um, 
On the other hand, I think that this system of grading is is relatively ubiquitous and ends up, you know, getting its tendrils into almost anything. So if I take grades off the table in my class, I can't imagine that the grade isn't still there in the middle of the room, kind of hovering and influencing what we do there. Um, mm. The other thing that I would say is that I can't, um, I, I don't like. It's one of the reasons why I never advocate that other. St- teachers need to stop grading. I've never written a piece that said grading, you know, I I will say that grading is insidious, but I sort of mean capital G grading. When I talk Mm -hmm. about that, I'm not um, demonizing my colleagues who grade uh, because there's one thing that I think is really important is teachers having an authentic pedagogy, just as important as learners being able to, you know, have an authentic learning experience. Um, which is different for every learner. I also think teachers need to have an authentic pedagogy. So, for example, if a teacher was suddenly told that they couldn't grade and they took grades off the table, but they still had particular expectations of students, but that those expectations were now just invisible to students, Mm -hmm. then the students are going to be constantly trying to look for these shifting, you know, these essentially shifting and also potentially invisible goalposts. And that can be even more damaging and even worse, and especially worse for the underprivileged students who have less ability to navigate that system. Right. The other thing, I guess the other thing I would say, though, is that, like, I've constantly got this, we have to prepare students for the world, and in the mm-hmm. world, we are graded, <laughs> in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And while right. I would suggest that grading does have its tendrils into a lot of different areas of our lives, there is nothing in the rest of the world that resembles the grading system that we have in the United States, the, the absurdity of the grading system that we use in K through 12 and higher ed in the United States. It is, it, it is bizarre in a way, you know, the rest of the world is bizarre too, but there's nothing quite so bizarre, um, like employee evaluations, HR driven employee evaluations. Certainly there is a kind of grading that's happening there, but not to the extent or to the level, not, it's not every individual behavior that a person does on their job is, is graded. And then it's, it's all getting turned into, you know, quantify, you know, quantified, you know, there's actually conversations that people are having with one another and there, the grading in an, even an HR, very fastidious HR environment, there's still a sense of it being holistic in a way that the grading that's happening in K through 12 and higher ed just really isn't. Yes. Okay. Well, one last question, and this this is kind of more for our grade, gradeless educators, and, and it follows off of what you just said there is, how do you think we need to think about our going gradeless in order for it to be liberatory or transformative or even an act of resistance? Uh, can we simply content ourselves in knowing that we have taken this important step toward a more humane approach? Or do we need to somehow supplement that understanding and that stance? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that the, the, the choice to grade or not grade can, can only be one step in a very, very rich approach to pedagogy. For me, I think of it as a, as a sort of metaphorical act that then ripples out into all the other choices that I make. Um, for example, in the piece, I talk about my, the sort of foundation of my pedagogy being this notion of trusting students. And so in some ways, when I write about self-evaluations and the, the various different assessment practices I've done for years, it's, it, it, 
grades are almost a red herring in that. The, 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 the gist, the, uh, the sort of thing that is underlying that is this notion of trust and how do you build it. And honestly, trust is a lot more complicated human, human, um, sort of human activity, human emotion, um, human practice. And you know, much harder to figure out than just deciding that I'm not going to use A, B, C, D, and F. Like, in some ways, people ask, well, how do you do this not grading? That's sort of the easiest thing to address. The hardest thing to address is how I then do the real work, which is developing and building the trust. You know, me trusting my students and also my, tr- my students trusting me and also my students trusting each other. Um, because that is what becomes absolutely essential in a gradeless classroom in my mind. Absolutely. Well, Jesse, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Could you tell us, um, tell our listeners where they can find you and maybe just briefly some things we can be looking out from you in the near future? Cool. Um, yeah, my uh, the place that uh, I can be found is usually on Twitter, at uh, uh, Jessifer, J-E-S-S-I-F-E-R. And I also have a, a blog that I don't write that many blog posts on, but because uh, I'm usually kind of writing all over the web. Um, when you do, they're awesome. <laughs> my own blog blog is at jessestommel.com. And in some ways, the thing that I, happens is that I write for all kinds of different venues across the web. Um, mm-hmm. And then the pieces that end up on my blog are the really personal ones, the ones that I ha- feel like I have to keep them a little closer. And that a lot of my stuff about grading has ended up on my own block because there's this sense in which it's so personal. Like it's such a, like an integral part of my pedagogy. Um, and then as far as like what to watch out for next, there's the digital pedagogy lab that's happening in late July, early August. And we've been, we've been increasing with that event, trying to reach out to K through 12 educators to involve them in the discussions that we have there. It's been mostly, um, higher ed up to this point. Uh, but we've always had a pretty good contingent of K through 12, but we're trying to build, uh, build a little bit more of a community there, but sort of bridging the conversations that are happening in K through 12 and higher ed. And then the other thing is hopefully relatively soon I'll be writing a follow-up blog post that does talk a little bit about the the hows and Mm -hmm. and really that will be about my hows because I don't necessarily think your hows can be the same as mine I don't think your practices are sort of what essentially we may be after the same goal but you're going to do different practices in your classroom with your students in order to achieve those same goals right Okay, one last question. Can't resist. Favorite Shakespeare play? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask something else about my beard. Um, no. <laughs> um, my favorite Shakespeare play, well, I'm going to say two, because I have my favorite one personally, and then also I have my favorite play to teach. Okay. Um, my favorite play personally is Hamlet. I, I think just yes. because of how rich Hamlet it is and how much is going on in Hamlet. And I actually have two lines from Hamlet tattooed onto my body. Um, and, and they're the first two, they're two of the first lines from the opening scene and they're tattooed in one's tattooed in binary code and the other is tattooed in hexadecimal code. We can talk about those more next time, the next podcast, but then my favorite play to teach is Romeo and Juliet. Okay. And the reason I love teaching Romeo and Juliet is I'm t- usually teaching, um, either adult learners or, um, college uh, college students. And so many people are just taught Romeo and Juliet in high school. 
And what I love to do is help them rediscover it, help them return to what for many was a kind of foundational um, work of literature. I, you know, I read it when I was in ninth grade and saw productions of it when I was in ninth grade. And that seems a pretty common experience. And so I really like to have them return to it because Shakespeare plays, that's where they really come alive. They come alive when you read them at different ages in your life and rediscover them over time. Right. Well, I, I am 100% with you on Hamlet. Um, so thank you very much, Jesse. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. That concludes this episode of TG2 Chat. If you'd like more information, check us out on our website at teachersgoinggreenless.com or our Facebook group. You can also follow us on Twitter at TG2Chat. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to make sure that you catch future installments of TG2Cast. Thanks for listening.